right. <clears throat> well, First John chapter five. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. First John five. Um, we're kind of getting down to the home stretch of this series. That you may know, uh, we have one more week, and then uh, after that is Thanksgiving. Um, the week of Thanksgiving, we're doing something cool. We're going to have a party, uh, New Life Sunday. So on uh, that weekend, right after Thanksgiving, we are going to get together and we are going to celebrate new life. We have people being baptized. We have uh, new members <clears throat> who are choosing to say, Journey is my family. And <clears throat> I'm sort of stepping into becoming a covenant member of this, uh, this church. And we have parent-child dedications, and so it's just going to be a cool Sunday that weekend um, of Thanksgiving. So we'd love to, love to have you here to help celebrate that. We'd love to have you be praying for those people who are taking these steps of faith. It's, it's, it's significant. It's a big deal. So uh, cool stuff. Would also, um, after Thanksgiving, it's, it's Advent. It's like we're, we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. And so our Advent series this year is going to be called uh, The Soul Felt Its Worth. And so super excited about that coming up. And uh, hopefully by that time we're like covered in snow. Um, I'm hoping for like getting buried in snow all winter this year. So maybe I'm alone in that, but just to let you know that's what I'm praying for. So, <clears throat> so um, this morning, we're, we're looking at these 13 verses of John chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. And I had kind of this like, I think it was an epiphany moment this past week. And as always, my epiphanies happen over a good jar of salsa. Um, that I, you know, like John, he, he just, he keeps coming back to these same themes, right? And it can feel repetitive. It can feel like, oh man, like we, we he's talked about that before. But had this moment, so I crack open a, a new jar of salsa, and, and some of you who know me well know that I love salsa. Like, the reason we have a garden is t- to make salsa. We try, like, we have a, a salsa garden, you know, lots of tomatoes and peppers and all that stuff, even though it didn't do very well this year. Um, and, and our goal is to, to can about one quart of salsa for every week of the year. So we want to get between 50 and 60 quarts of salsa for me. Um, now my kids are starting to enjoy salsa now, and so this is a problem, which means I either have to make it too spicy for them so they don't mess with it, or, um, this is one, you're allowed one area in your life where you're not generous, right? Maybe. Um, or we have to do more. So anyhow, so I, I crack open this new jar of salsa, and, uh, and the, the fun thing about making salsa is the process, right? Like you, you get uh, these ingredients like the tomatoes and bell peppers and jalapeno peppers and onions and garlic and, and some cumin and maybe some cilantro and, and maybe a little bit of salt and a little bit of sugar. And you, you, you blend it all together, right? Like you put it in the food processor, you blend it all together, and then you put it in a pot on the stove and you start cooking it down. Uh, you let it you kind of simmer down. And what happens in that whole process is everything just sort of gets mixed up and just sort of like flavors everything else. So when you open salsa, the finished product, you can't tell where the peppers stop and the onions start, right? Because the peppers taste oniony and the onions taste peppery. Like it just, everything is all mixed together. And that's a little bit how John writes, is like these themes. He, he's just sort of like, we're into chapter 5 now, we're on the home stretch, and we've heard all these themes, themes like believing in Jesus, themes like being born of God, themes like faith, um, the victory of Jesus, atonement for sin and forgiveness, loving God, loving each other, loving one another. We've heard all these themes, and John, the way he writes is like he just sort of puts them in the food processor, you know, blends them all together, lets them simmer down, and you can't tell where one theme stops and the other one starts. 
And rather than try to like parse everything out, we just get to enjoy it like a good chip full of salsa, right? To just say like, it's just, it's just beautiful. Like you get the full flavor in every bite. And that's what, um, that's what I hope that we, as we experience this passage this morning, we just taste and see that the Lord is good, right? To just, um, just experience the goodness of this. So um, let's take a look. First John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So let's stop there for a second. Um, so again, we have these themes, familiar themes. We've heard John talk about the commands. The commands are to love God, love each other. It's not burdensome. It's not like this, this heavy thing that gets put on our shoulders that we just have to like, you know, sort of put our head down and drive forward. It's not burdensome. It's actually the most life-giving thing we could do. That, that to live life with Jesus is the most freeing, life-giving thing we could ever do. But the word I want to focus in on these first three verses is the word believe. Because John makes, uh, he comes back to it, circles back to it a number of times in this passage. The word believe and uh, I want to unpack this a little bit. What does it mean to believe in something? He says very clearly, um, this is how you know that you like, have eternal life, that you've been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So what does it mean to believe? Um, if you were going to look up belief in the you know, dictionary, you would get a definition that says um, to, to believe that something is true or genuine or real. You accept it as true, genuine, or real. So belief happens in your head, right? You, you, I, yeah, like I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I, I believe that's true. I think it's true. I affirm it, right, in my head. And that's how we tend to think about beliefs. Our beliefs are the things that we hold in our head. We're convinced it's true, but that's not how the Bible talks about belief. Um, now, if you were going to, like, read this in the original language, um, and, and by the way, you can do this. This is not something that just for pastors. There are fantastic tools, free tools online, um, like the Blue Letter Bible is a great one, or Bible Hub. Like, you have these great tools that will give you the Greek words, and you can just look at them. You can find where else they come in the Bible, and you can just understand, like, a, a fuller meaning. If you're into that sort of thing, again, if you need help, I would love to help you do this. But if you look at the word belief, it's the same word in the New Testament as faith and faithfulness. You, you can't, in the New Testament, you can't tell, if you were reading in Greek, you couldn't tell if it's supposed to be, is this like faith or faithfulness? It's the same word. So the only way you can tell is by looking at the verse around it, the context. And it's the word pistis, which always gets a giggle from like junior high kids in the room, right? Um, if you're looking for a good biblical name, don't choose pistis, right? Choose something else. Um, but it's, it's, this, it's this word, faith, belief, faithfulness. It's all the same word. Um, and it means to trust or to entrust. So here, here's a way of thinking about this. Howard and Kathy flew to New York this week. Uh, they were doing a, a conference for Revive, just coaching churches. And um, they bought tickets to go, like weeks ago, right? Bought these tickets. And the moment they actually paid for tickets, they were putting their trust in the airline that was going to get them there. 
So they put money down, they're trusting, hey, the airline's going to get me there, even though we're flying through Chicago in November, we think we're going to get there, um, which is a risk, but they're risky people, so they did it. So they drove to the airport, they you know, go through the, you know, the screening, they you know, do all the stuff, they get to the gate, and they're all the time, they're trusting that their ticket is good and they're going to get there. But something changes the moment they step on the airplane, right? Because you're no longer just trusting, you are entrusting your whole life. To, to this pilot, essentially. But here's the crazy thing is you've never met the pilot. So you, you don't know her, you don't know him, but what you're doing is you're trusting the whole system that like vets the pilots, that like gives them the training and makes sure they have enough rest or they're highly caffeinated, right? You, you trust like this whole system that it's going to get you there. You are entrusting your life to get there. And that's a little bit of what this word faith means. It's, it's entrusting ourselves. It's not just saying, yeah, I believe it's true, but I'm actually going to entrust my life to it. Does that make sense? Um, and, and so the early Anabaptists, we've been talking about, you know, it's 500 years since the Reformation. And, and this is where our roots, like as, as Anabaptists, um, this is where they begin. And they begin in the Great Reformation at a time when, when these reformers were saying, salvation comes to us by grace through faith. That was one of the big components of the Reformation. Is it's not by works, it's by grace, the grace of God, and our faith in, in, in the work of Christ is how we're saved, we're born again. But the Anabaptists were those who were quick to say, yes, absolutely, but we have to understand what faith is. Faith is not just giving a mental nod to something being true, it's choosing to follow that truth to entrust our lives, because why? Faith and faithfulness can't be separated. So let's say you're, um, here's an example. Um, I heard Bruxy Cavey talk about this example once. He, he, um, he says, like, imagine you're lost in the woods, right? You, you went on an adventure, you're on a hike, and you took off from the trailhead, but you, you don't really, like, know your way around the, the, the wilderness like this. You weren't totally prepared. You saw you were going to go on a nice afternoon stroll, and you got hopelessly lost, right? I don't know if you've ever been lost in the wilderness, but, like, it's a pretty terrifying experience. So you um, imagine yourself there, you, you don't quite know, the trail has split a couple times, and you don't know your way back to the trailhead. And so the afternoon starts to wear on, you start to get, like as, a, as, as like the sun starts to set, you start to get a little bit more anxious. And you're saying, I, like, what am I going to do? Am I going to camp here? Am I going to just like take off and start moving in a direction? And, and you're waiting. In the middle of this anxiety, you hear somebody walking down the trail, Right? And you turn and you look, and here is like a mountain man. I mean, this guy looks like a survival, survivor man, right? I mean, he looks like he's been living in the woods um, for, uh, for most of his life. He's got barnacles growing on him and stuff, barnacle moss maybe. That'd be like living in the ocean, right? Um, he's getting my ecosystems messed up. So he, uh, he, he comes, and he's walking down the trail, and he looks at you, and he, like, you're thinking, like, is this guy... Is this safe? Is this okay? Whatever. Like, you're trying to evaluate him, right, as he's coming. And he looks at you and says, what's, what's the deal? You look lost. And you say, yeah, I am lost. Like, I have no idea where I'm going. He's like, well, where did you start out? What was the trailhead? And you tell him the trailhead. And he says, oh, yeah, that's what it's like right down here. Follow me. And he starts walking down the trail. What do you do? Right? You have this moment to make a decision. Do you trust this guy? Is he trustworthy? And if you trust him, what are you going to do? No, follow him. It would make no sense for you to say like, yeah, I, I trust that he actually knows where he's going, but I'm actually going to go this way. 
right? To, to trust him is to follow him. And this is what, this is what faith is. It's saying, yes, Jesus, we, we believe in you, we trust you, and because we trust you, we are going to follow you. We're going to give our lives to follow you, to be your disciples, to learn from you how to live in this world, and to help others learn to follow you as well. And so um, this is what believing is. When, when John talks about believing, when you read the word faith, when you read the word belief in the New Testament, it is, yes, it's saying, yes, I believe it's true, but it's also this commitment to say, I'm going to, I'm going to trust my life to it. I'm going to follow. Does that make sense? Faith, faithfulness. Yes? Makes sense? Okay, good deal. Can't separate those two out. Um, okay, so let's, uh, let's, look at verse, let's look at verse 4. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Now, for everyone born of God, so it is this belief in Jesus, this choosing to follow him, that means that we're born again. The moment we turn to him, we're born again. Now, for everyone who is born again, they overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith, or is it faithfulness, right? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes, who puts their trust and trusts their life to, that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, so let's talk about this word like overcoming a little bit. Overcoming the world. This is a theme of, of, of John's that he's so passionate that we understand. How many of you know that our world is broken? I mean, when John talks about the world, he's talking about these fallen systems, these, these fallen principalities and powers that are at work in the world. And he's passionate to have us know that they're not passive. Like that these fallen systems that work in the world, they are not just passive, sort of watching us live our lives, and if we happen to bump into them, like, you know, they'll have an impact on us. But the world, as John talks about it, is, is actively pursuing us to steal, kill, and destroy life. That, that they are empowered by the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. And so John, he, he's, he constantly is saying, like, even all the way back to his gospel, as he's talking about Jesus, there is this theme of confrontation with evil that you can't miss when you read John's gospel. It's all throughout. In fact, let's take a look at a couple places. John chapter 12, verse 31 says this. Uh, Jesus speaks these words. He says, Now is the time for the judgment of on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So Jesus says there's something about his life that is driving out the prince of this world. Uh, There's something about like Jesus is the kingdom of God in flesh and blood. He is the rightful ruler of heaven and earth. And he is the one who has come to judge the world and to to cast out the prince of this world, the Satan. Uh, He goes on, John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have told you these things... Now he's speaking to his disciples. He's headed, he's headed for the end of his life, laying down his life. And he speaks to his disciples. He says, um, I've told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. See, Jesus came into this world, this world he created, this world he spoke into existence, and the world didn't know him, and the world didn't recognize him. And the world actually resisted him. And you could see all of Jesus' life is pushing back the powers of darkness. 
right? He's, he's healing people. He's, he's casting out demons. He's setting people free. He's, he's confronting the systems of religion and, and politics. He's confronting them and pushing them back. And he says, my kingdom is different. It is absolutely different. And it is the way the world was always intended to be before it was corrupted by the powers of sin. And the, Jesus says he's pushing back the powers of darkness. The darkness is, is, is gathering itself and pushing back to him. And you can see all of Jesus' life as like this conflict between good and evil, light and darkness, Jesus and the enemy. And, and all of his life leads up to this place in John chapters 18 and 19 where, where it all kind of comes to a head, where he is standing there. Jesus is in this conversation. It's, if you call it a conversation, he's being accused by Caiaphas, who's the high priest, the religious leader, and Pilate, who's the political leader, the leader of the empire, right? Of, he's the governor. So Jesus is standing there confronting the religious and political powers of the day, these fallen systems in these two people. And, and there's this conversation in, in John 19, and it, he's standing there in front of Pilate, and and Pilate looks at him and says, what is truth? What is truth? And Jesus is interesting. He's silent. He doesn't say anything. And Pilate answers his own question. He says this, don't you know that I have the power to kill you or set you free? Pilate answers his own question. What is truth to Pilate? It is power enforced by violence. That's, that's, that's what Pilate says, this is true. This is true. I have power, you don't. I have the power to kill you or set you free. Don't you know that? This is how the world works. Pilate actually backs Caiaphas, the religious leader, into a corner to the point where Caiaphas ends up saying these words. As the high priest of God's people, he says, we have no king but Caesar. We surrender to the power of this fallen world. This is the highest form of blasphemy for, for the high priest. To, to say, we, we have no king but Caesar, right? I mean, this is, he, Caiaphas all of a sudden takes his religious mask off and he reveals that he has actually been a force for evil in the world. So Jesus confronting Pilate, he's judging. This is the moment when the prince of this world is being driven out as these powers collaborate together and they, they, they um, take Jesus, they falsely accuse him, and they nail him to the cross. This is the moment when the kingdom of God won the victory over the kingdom of the world. When all of the sin of all of humanity, of all of the years, was sinned into the body of Jesus, was, was, was put on him, nailed him to the cross, and Jesus choosing not to use the kind of power that this world has always known, the kind of power that's reinforced by violence, but reveals that the true power God's power is the power to lay down your life in sacrificial love for your enemies. This is the victory that John says has overcome the world. This is why the rest of the New Testament, you read the book of Revelation, and it's this letter written to the early church, and they said, don't forget that we worship the Lamb of God who was slain. The one who won the victory is the Lamb who gave his life. Not the one who is the conquering, sort of, you know, violent king like you would think. Not some dude on a horse like you'll see in a town square around the world who won the victory. That is not the kind of power the kingdom of God is about. It is the power to say, we will love our enemies. 
we will pray for those who persecute us. We will resist the power enforced by violence, and we will choose to entrust ourselves to Jesus that he, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, has, has led us to eternal life, and we will follow him. And John, he, like, he remembers and he points back he, in John 19, verse 34, it says, John was there. If you remember, like, John is there. He's followed Jesus all the way to the cross, along with Mary and, and Mary Magdalene. They followed Jesus, and they've seen him, and they've seen him, like, take all of this ugliness, all of this sin onto himself, and they've seen him breathe out the words of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, because they're blinded. They don't know what they're doing. And he forgives them. And he, they, they see him as he, he speaks this word of grace to the thief that's on the cross beside him who says, Jesus, today would, or, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He entrusts himself to Jesus in that moment. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. They've seen, John saw this. And then he sees and he remembers in this moment, he remembers when Jesus had breathed his last breath and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last and he dies and the Roman centurion comes with a a spear and pierces him in the side, John 19, 34, and he sees this flow of blood and water coming from his side. This is the moment that Christ has won the victory over the world. This is the moment the Roman centurion looks up and says, surely this was the Son of God. This is the moment the curtain tore between all the people and the holy of holies, the presence of God. This was the moment in the suffering of God on our behalf that God invited us all into his presence in this life, moment by moment. And John, he, he remembers this. He, he's passionate that we don't forget this. This is the victory. And he, he goes on in verses 6 to 8, and he talks about the water, the blood, and the spirit. He's remembering this, like this gritty kind of sacrifice that God is not the kind of God who stays distant from our pain. That God isn't the sort of God who, who sort of looks at us from a distance and says, like, you know, um, suck it up. It, it, it'll get better. It'll be okay. But God is the sort of God who comes into our pain, who felt it, who saves us by actually entering into our suffering. The blood and the water, they testify that Jesus has entered into our pain so that we will never go through pain alone, so that we will never suffer alone, so that we will never um, go through even the valley of the shadow of death alone. Jesus Jesus shows us this. Now let's, I want to talk about the last couple of verses here. Verses 9 to 13. Let's take a look at these. Verses 9 to 13. Now we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which has been given about his son. So he's like, all of this, God has given us a testimony. Hey, trust Jesus. Trust him. Like he's trustworthy. Follow him. Uh, whenever, whoever believes, again, entrusts themselves to the Son of God and accepts this testimony, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about the Son. Now, verse 11, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Somebody say, I have eternal life. Would you say that? Now, John does not say, I will have eternal life, as if life, eternal life is something that begins after we die. 
right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just living now, but Jesus is kind of giving me this promise, so someday when I take my last breath, that's when eternal life begins. But he says eternal life is something we have right now. When we believe, when we put our trust in him, when we start following Jesus, we have eternal life. And to understand that changes everything. Because in this life, we are vulnerable. Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Like, you're going to have trouble from your body breaking down, right? From all those high school football days and those silly things you did when you were a kid, right? You're, you're, you're going to feel the effects of this as time goes on and, and, and your body is going to be vulnerable to, to pain and to, to sickness and to cancer. And your, your life is going to be vulnerable to accidents and to, to violence in this world. Like you're just going to live in this place of trouble and vulnerability. But don't be afraid because eternal life is already in you. Like Jesus, he says, you have eternal life. The moment you surrender your life to Jesus, the moment, you, you, you put your trust in him. Jesus says you are born again. You, you are given new life that the Spirit comes into us and we have been given this gift of life that is not vulnerable. Eternal life cannot be taken away. It cannot be damaged. It cannot be pushed out of us. That the eternal life that God has planted inside of us is indestructible. And what happens like when we, when we sort of receive that and understand that, that the eternal life, yes, it's going to like... It's going to take us through to after our death on the other side, but it begins here and now. One of the things it does is it rearranges the way we live our lives. Like it changes everything to know like I have eternal life right now. Right now I have it because of faith in Jesus. One of the things it does is it says um, my priorities shift, right? Your priorities shift. Uh, If you have a piece of paper in front of you, draw a zero and a one on your paper. Would you do that? We're going like binary on this. Some of you who are like computer programmers, like, sweet. Eric's geeking out with some binary. I'm not. Um, I barely even know the word binary. So, um, so if you write a zero and a one, your zero here represents your physical life, this life that's vulnerable. This is your, your, your health, your, um, your family, your job, your money, your bank account, your cars, all that stuff. That's zero. The one is eternal life that Jesus offers us. Okay? Make sense? Life, physical life, and eternal life. Zero and one. Now, if you put the zero in front of the one, how much do you have? Like, if, you, if you're going to, like, write this out, you put zero, one, what does that number represent? How, how much do you have? What if you put two zeros in front of the one? What do you have? What about a hundred zeros in front of the one? What do you have? One. You, you can have... All of the zeros you want, all of the stuff of this life in sort of in that first place, and it adds nothing to life. You can't change the value of the one. But what happens if you take the one and you put it first, and then you add a zero behind it? What happens to that one? What happens when you add a zero? Ten. Two zeros is a hundred. Three zeros is a thousand. When we understand that we have been given eternal life, it rearranges the priorities in our lives right? And and we understand that our life doesn't consist in like holding on to our physical lives. It doesn't consist in in gathering more possessions and in having the greatest car or the greatest house or all of that. All of that stuff becomes like infinitely second place to the life that God has placed inside of us, this eternal life that is indestructible. And the moment we listen to the words of Jesus and we seek first his kingdom, 
and we say, I, this, is, this is the highest priority of my life, well, then all of a sudden, those other things, those zeros, they come along behind the one, and they start to add value. It changes the way we hold them. It changes how we use them. We become generous with them. We, we begin to open up our lives, and we say, are there people who need homes, right? Or, or we just begin to share and live out of that abundance. You have eternal life. It, when we understand that, it rearranges the zeros in our life, but it also changes how we approach death. Like, to know that we have eternal life means that Christians, like, we don't have to live in fear of death. Death is the power of the enemy. Like, to fear death is the power that this world had over people. And because Jesus gave his life and because God raised him from the dead, we trust that we don't actually have to go to the end of our lives fearing it and hanging on to life with every shred of our strength. And this has been the testimony of Christians throughout history from the very beginning that we face death with courage. We face death with a sense of peace that says, I've trusted Jesus my whole life. I once was young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And this is this incredible testimony that says, like, we, we trust Jesus, that we've trusted him with life and we trust him with our eternity. And, um, like, this past week I spent um, part of the week both with a, a family who was celebrating a loved one who was a follower of Jesus, and it was a, and had had passed away, and it was a celebration. There was joy, and there was of course there's pain in it, but there's joy and peace and hope in it. And and spent part of the end of the week with um, some of you know uh, Gary, Polton from Hog Wild Restaurants. Gary uh, and Tammy, they've been around Journey for um, for a while, just connected to many of us. And in October, Gary was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer, and he, he's, he's young. He's in his early 60s. And, um, and the thing is, I was talking to the family this week, uh, Tammy just said, you know, Gary was never afraid. Like, he, he, was, he was, wanted to make sure we knew that he had entrusted his life to Jesus. And so, yeah, like, there were dreams that they had that, that are hard to let go of. But the hope, the gift, the peace that comes from eternal life in Jesus, it changes the way we approach even our death. Because everything, all the zeros in our life, at some point we're going to let go of them. At some point we're going to release them, and so we might as well hold them with with open hands. Right? And so one of my hopes and prayers, uh, please pray for for Gary, pray for Tammy, pray for their family. They're praying that, that God would just take him. Um, they're inviting people to pray, especially this afternoon at 3 o'clock. So would you pray for them? Um, and, and I pray that, that we could live this life without fear, without fear of death because of our faith in Christ. So God, we, uh, we say thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thanks that you have given us eternal life. You've invited us into your family. And God, I, I pray if there are some of us in here who, who hear this message, who we, um, we would have to be honest to say we don't have eternal life, that, that life is in your Son and those who have the Son have the life, and those who don't, don't. And so uh, if there are any of us who are here this morning, and we have to recognize that we, we have not entrusted ourselves to Jesus, that you would you'd give us the courage to do whatever we need to do to just to say yes, to, to turn, to follow him. If we have questions that we are still wrestling with, uh, give us the courage to talk about it. Um, if we have doubts, give us the courage to talk about those. 
And God, maybe in, even in this moment, we're saying we want it. We, we want to follow you, Jesus. Uh, God, I pray that in this moment, that as, as our hearts turn and we open up and we just say thank you, we surrender. God, that we, we trust that in this moment, we're born again. That the moment our hearts surrender to you, we are filled with your Holy Spirit and eternal life has been placed inside of us. So God, we, um, we're just so grateful that you've called us into your family. We're grateful that you've, you've given us the gift of hope and joy and peace in this world, even though we're, we live in the midst of trouble. God, we pray that our lives would be filled with the, with the joy and peace that only you can give us. We pray this in Jesus' name.